Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to AOA. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for letting us be part of your day. Coming up today, we'll talk markets and inflation concerns with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with Stone X. We're going to talk with uh, the National Milk Producers Federation about some uh, efforts to make some changes and strengthen the H-2A visa program, which would be very helpful to agriculture. And I'm going to have some thoughts on Cuba. Cuba very much in the news again, and I'm going to kind of look back on my two visits to that nation, that island nation just off the coast of Florida. I've been there a couple of times, and uh, with what's going on in the news today, it makes me think about some of those uh, experiences I had there, and also want to talk about uh, the controversy that continues to uh, surround the Cuban embargo. I'll have some thoughts on that a little bit later. But I want to start things off talking with Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Ethan, thank you for joining us. Uh, been a lot going on, different proposals, different things happening concerning various um, aspects of the uh, that impact the beef industry with markets and labeling and a lot of different things. But there's some legislation now being proposed that I know you're you're not happy with and you think would be the wrong approach. Tell us why and what are we talking about here? Well, uh, I think you're probably talking about Cory Booker's uh, mm-hmm. reintroduction of the Farm System Reform Act. This is a bill uh, that he introduced in the last Congress, and it's it's making its return here. And you know, it's it's it, basically, if you boil it down, it's a pretty thinly veiled effort to end cattle production in the United States in its current form. Uh, this is a bill that that would dedicate money to buying out. Uh, anybody with a feedlot and and putting them out of business by 2040. Um, You know, they put a lot of other kind of pieces in there that are hot-button topics in the industry at the moment, things like product of the USA labeling and competition in the marketplace. But, you know, those things are being tackled by the administration, by USDA, through more appropriate regulatory vehicles right now. We don't need Congress in the mix on that. But what this is really designed to do is, is... and the ability to to do cattle feeding at scale, which uh, you know anyone who's involved in this industry knows, is is the reason we have the highest quality beef in the world and the lowest environmental footprint. It's it's that optimized system that works so well for American cattle producers, and and that's really what's being targeted here. As you said, this is not new, coming from Senator Booker, so I guess we're not surprised at it, but. Uh, Uh, He didn't get it through before. Is there any support for it, or are you concerned that he has more support this time? Well, it looks like the uh, leading supporters are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, Um, so not people you originally, you know, initially think of when you think of champions of American agriculture. Um, But, you know, what we've seen over the last few years, Mike, um, is a lot of these radical animal rights groups that really want to end animal agriculture, period, putting together sort of front groups and operations that are that are sort of uh, proposing themselves as being uh, a voice of small family farmers. And, and the, the fact is that that's just not the case. And, and that's what we're seeing with this is, gosh, we're putting this bill forward because we're fighting for small family farmers. I mean, the average member of NCBA owns 25 head of cattle. 
Um, we, we speak for tens of thousands of small family farmers around the country, farmers and ranchers, and I can tell you that if you ended their ability to sell their cattle into that supply chain or ended their ability to feed cattle in their operation, you will put this industry out of business. So um, it's, 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 it's pretty sad that that's kind of where we are, that they're using uh, the fact that there's a lot of frustration in the marketplace right now to try to slip something by the industry. But, but unfortunately, that's kind of where we find ourselves. So it's going to be important yeah. to make sure folks really know what we're looking at. Yeah, I think that you hit the key point there. Uh, there is frustration with the cattle markets right now, as they are and amongst many producers. And it's almost like uh, Senator Brooker and others pushing this are trying to use a divide and conquer strategy. Let's take advantage. Uh, it seems to be their strategy of that frustration and, and basically slip something through that might look at on surface as somewhat appealing. Uh, but if you look at the big picture, would do more harm than good. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And, you know, just to be callous about it, Mike, if I was being paid to be an operative for, you know, for the animal rights community, I'd be doing the same thing. I mean, it's a, it's a great strategy, right? And you play on people's concerns and fears and, and, and play on the fact that, that many people don't really understand the complexities of the political landscape in Washington. And they hear somebody who sounds like they're fighting for them, um, and they latch on to things like that. And it's really important to understand people's motives. Um, you know, and when you have people enter this conversation, that, that haven't been involved, that aren't advocates for agriculture, and in some cases, like Senator Booker, uh, are vegan, don't eat meat. They don't believe that we should be producing animal protein. Um, you really should be looking carefully at that and, and be suspicious of anybody like that saying they're here to save you. So what's the next step in this? I mean, it, I would think it would, a lot of uh, opposition would raise up even within Congress uh, to this uh, on both sides, I would think. I would, I would think so as well. We certainly want to make sure that we're making our voices heard. I know others are as well. Uh, you know, again, this bill hits on some other topics that are big issues in the industry. And, you know, there are a, a tremendous amount of, of dedicated senators from across cattle country that are, that are deeply involved in those issues. Uh, you'll notice we don't see a lot of them connected to this bill either because they know that that's not where this conversation is. There are a lot of other bills. There are a lot of other initiatives at USDA and at the White House that are, that are working on and tackling those very serious issues, this isn't it. So we're going to have to just keep educating and make sure we're, we're really clarifying the difference between the two. Okay, we'll watch that closely. That's Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Meanwhile, Ethan, uh, we continue, discussions continue on, on uh, not only cattle markets, but the uh, labeling of meat. I mean, this is a, this is a big time uh, uh, for the industry moving forward, right? Some critical issues are being addressed, at least, and we'll see where this goes from here. It is. And, you know, we've talked about this around our office for years. What seem like separate issues are really very interrelated, right? And, and differentiating our product in the marketplace, um, restoring leverage to the cattle producer instead of the packer, uh, making sure that our beef is labeled properly and that it's representing to consumers what we want to convey. Um, those are all things that, that seem like separate issues, but you're seeing them come together because they are interrelated. It's all part of the same package. Um, so, you know, in some respects, looking at them holistically is helpful because we can really talk about, you know, what we need from all of those different pieces to, to really get that leverage pendulum back in the producer's direction and, and grow the industry. Yeah. And can we come to a consensus on the best way to do that? That's the challenge that's ahead. Ethan, good to talk with you again. Thank you very much. You bet, Mike. All right, Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's 
Beef Association. Well, Cuba, very much back in the news again with the uh, the protests that's going on that are going on there and even here in this country as well. Cuba remains a very controversial and emotional issue for many in this country. I've visited uh, that island nation a couple of times and have some thoughts on what we're seeing now, what I saw then, and some thoughts uh, on the embargo. The embargo continues to be very controversial, and I'll have some thoughts on that as well. That's coming up next, why I think the, the Cuban embargo is a failed policy, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're joined by Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. We've had some setbacks in the courts from the Supreme Court and Appellate Court on waivers and now on E15 year-round sales. The news isn't all bad. First, give us your assessment of where we're at after these rulings and your outlook for the industry now moving forward. You know, obviously very disappointed in these rulings, and they definitely are setbacks, but this battle is far from over. And the good news on the E15 ruling is this decision doesn't change anything for retailers who are currently selling E15 this summer. They don't have to do anything different for now. The D.C. Circuit essentially put a stay on its ruling. Again, the good news is we don't expect the court decision on E15 to have any impact on gallons sold this summer and the retailer's ability to sell E15 uh, through the middle of September. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. 54. So basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. 
Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Okay, coming up in the second half of our program, we're going to talk markets and inflation with Arlen Suderman with StoneX, and we're going to talk about the efforts to make some changes to the H-2A visa program, very important to agriculture. We'll talk about that with uh, Claudia Larson with the National Milk Producers Federation coming up. But first, uh, just some thoughts on the situation with Cuba. It seems like Cuba will be very much in our news for a while, then we don't hear much about it, then it's back in the news again. But it it's a huge issue. Our relations with Cuba, for many in this country, is a huge issue. And um, continues to be a lightning rod of controversy in our country as well. So as I watch the, these images of Cubans protesting in the streets of Havana, I can't help but remember my two visits to the island nation several years ago. I found the Cuban people to be very friendly, but certainly oppressed by the communist government. No getting around that. Many are very, very poor in Cuba and struggling just to survive. Now some, and I talked to some of them, some had found ways to make a decent living. They had to be very creative to do so, but some have done it, but it wasn't easy, and, and for many it just wasn't and isn't something that they can really do. It's often pointed out that Cuba lies just 90 miles from Florida. That's a fact, but I tell you what, as I stood on the shoreline one day looking out at the water while I was in Cuba. I'm looking out at the water and I, I realized just how desperate you would have to be to climb onto some kind of a makeshift raft, float out into the ocean and hope that somehow you would make it to the United States. That is desperation. That shows how oppressed the people are there. I remember one time I was eating at a hotel restaurant in Havana, having what they considered to be a hamburger. Uh, and as I'm eating, I, I look out the window and I see hungry people just staring in at us, watching us. It made it even harder to enjoy that meal, knowing how poor and hungry so many people were in, uh, in Cuba. Watching what is going on there today, I admire their courage to protest for better lives. They are putting their lives at risk. They know they're going to face a crackdown from the communist government there. I admire these people's courage to protest. But I also think about the embargo the U.S. put on Cuba some six decades ago. And this remains very controversial. I understand why the embargo was put on originally. The Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, all very fresh in people's minds in this country back in the 60s. 
The intent, of course, was to get people to overthrow the communist regime. But I think it's safe to say that after 60 years, it didn't work. That is a failed policy. Now, I know that people with relatives in Cuba and families that lost possessions and loved ones when Castro took over, they don't want the embargo lifted. I have had some very strong debates, conversations, passionate, sometimes heated conversations with some of those people, including Florida Senator Marco Rubio and a former U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Talked about this, went back and forth. I still don't agree with them completely about their support and strong feelings in support of the embargo, but I certainly can and do appreciate their position. They come at it from a whole different position, say, than I do. It's a For them, it was and it still is very, very personal. Now, some of them still hope to get back land that their families lost when the change took over in, uh, in Cuba. I hope somehow that that could happen, but I, that I must admit, that does not seem likely at this point some 60 years later. Now the, the controversy around the embargo. I have heard some people once again in the media say that lifting the embargo would be rewarding and somehow supporting a communist government. I've heard that many times before, and as over the years as I have been critical of the embargo, I've been accused of being a, a communist supporter, and that's not it at all. Uh, I, I've said that they're an oppressive government, and I do not agree with or favor anything that they're doing and oppose what they're doing to their people. But I find it interesting that every time we make a grain sale to communist China, I don't hear that criticism of, oh, we're supporting a communist government, where it's because of its proximity to the U.S. and what happened during the missile crisis. Today's modern technology, missiles can be fired at us from anywhere around the world. What I don't understand is why we single out Cuban communists as somehow worse or more dangerous than in China or anywhere else around the world. Perhaps, and I just throw this out here again, perhaps it is time to try something else other than an embargo. I understand that the communist government there would have control still over what people are allowed to have. And uh, that's going to be a huge issue. But I, I feel the more we could send to that island nation, the harder it would be for that government to keep it from the people. In other words, perhaps more rather than less would at least be worth a try. Now, other nations, I, note, I, I saw this firsthand while I was there, other nations, including China, are doing a lot of business in Cuba, building hotels and other businesses there. They're gaining a foothold in a country just 90 miles from the U.S. Why should we allow others to get that advantage on us? And while not a large market by any means, it certainly could have been, and still could be, a very good market 
for U.S. farmers, who over the years, because of the embargo, have been allowed to sell a little, but not a lot, to Cuba, despite numerous trade missions like the ones I was on. I have felt for a long time that the embargo was very hypocritical. I still do. It's easy to single out a small country like Cuba that really is no longer a military threat to us and doesn't really have that much we want other than maybe cigars or rum or something like that. But, you know, you look at China, on the other hand, China produces many products that we want and have allowed ourselves to become dependent on. Plus, of course, China provides us a very big market for, among other things, our agricultural products. So a U.S. embargo on China would be very costly, and it would be very unpopular, and probably about as ineffective as the one has been on Cuba. But still, if you're going to compare the two, Cuba and China, I say, which country poses the biggest threat to us? You would think, if you watched the media and listened to the media in this country, you would think that Cuba somehow poses the bigger threat. I don't think it's Cuba at all. So when I watch what's going on there, again, I admire the people in Cuba, and I hope, I hope there's a way that we can find that will help the Cuban people. My heart goes out to them. And having been there and seen firsthand what they're dealing with, it's kind of like a country that in a lot of ways, even though they do have some technology and access to outside uh, media, although that's much of that, I guess, has been shut down right now, including their Internet and some things like that. But in many other ways, it's a country where time has stood still from about the time the embargo was put in place. And that's, you, you hear about the, the old cars and things like that. Yeah, that, that's there. Uh, but it's just, it's almost sad in a way because it just like time stood still for many people there because of the embargo. So my heart goes out to them and I hope we find a way that will will help the Cuban people. I just don't think keeping a failed policy in place like the embargo is the best way to go about it. I think 60 years is a long enough sample size to know that we need to try something else. All right, my thoughts on Cuba. Coming up next, we're going to talk markets with Arlen Suderman with StoneX and what does he think about inflation concerns and how does that impact agriculture moving forward. We'll talk about that next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 
Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. Ethanol production for the week ending July 9th was down 2.44% from the prior week and up 11.82% from the prior year. Stocks were down 0.07% from the prior week and up 2.55% from the prior year. Estimated corn use in production was 105.17 million bushels. On the Board of Trade this morning, September corn trading two and three quarters lower at 565 and a half cent. The December contract down three and a fraction at 555 and a half cent. For soybeans, the August contract down 2 at 1451, the September contract down a half a cent at 1393 and 3 quarters. For wheat, Chicago wheat September up 8 and a fraction at 662 and a fraction. Kansas City wheat September up 5 and a half cent at 633 and a fraction. Minneapolis spring wheat September up 12 and a fraction at 885, the December contract up 12 and a half cent at 872. For livestock, packers have not purchased a large amount of cattle so far this week with more activity likely servicing today or tomorrow. Even though margins are declining as box beef slides, they still need cattle to satisfy demand. Weights have trended lower over the past month and a half. Generally, weights tend to rise seasonally during this period. Wednesday, choice cuts declined 46 cents with select cuts down $2.99. Weekly export sales will be released today, providing some market direction. On the Board of Trade, August live cattle trading 37 cents lower at 120.87. The October contract down 42 at 126.35. For feeders, August down 17 at 156.77. September down 37 at 158.85. In lean hogs, the August contract down 17 at 104.92. The October contract up 55 at 89.77. In the outside markets, the Dow is down 33 points. The Nasdaq composite down 4. The S&P 500 down 7. And the U.S. dollar index is trending higher. You're listening to AOA. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, lots to talk about with 
Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. And Arlen, let's uh, let's start with weather, which is the big news right now. Some areas that really needed rain, they've been getting some enough to help. Others, though, staying very, very dry. How do you see this, the overall production picture here at mid-July? Yeah, that's going to be the big debate because while the rains have been very good, we've had one to two inch, some places three and four inch rains in the west of the Mississippi River. It's not been everywhere. And I was just looking at the evapotranspiration rates uh, for the coming week, and basically we're looking for evaporation rates in central Iowa about 1.45 inches. If you go up to the Twin Cities area, about one and three-quarter inches. If you go over toward uh, the Red River Valley, you're over two inches with the heat that's coming in. So that's how much rain will is ex- expected to evaporate to move through the plants and, and be lost over the next week. So the rains that were received will quickly disappear, but then again, we've got those areas that only received a half inch or less, or maybe less than an inch. So as the heat comes in, particularly in the Dakotas and parts of Minnesota, I think we're going to start to see crops go under stress rather quickly at this critical time of development. Once again, there's no doubt we're going to have some losses there below trend yield. Meanwhile, we have some states in the eastern Midwest, and even parts of the central Midwest, where we have some very good crop ratings right now, very good soil moisture levels, some places even uh, saturation to the point where we're starting to get some denitrification and some yellowing, um, but we have very good yield potential overall. So we're talking about roughly 25% of the belt of the corn acres in the northwestern Midwest that are in subcondition. Um, so how will the other 75%? We probably have about 25% that's about average, and you, so you got 50% that's above average, um, and 25% that's below average. How will it all balance out? Right now, they balance out pretty well. If you would take where we're at just today and to immediately say normal weather the rest of the season, obviously you can't do that, but uh, if today's condition ratings held into the end of the season, um, you'd say, okay, we're going to be just below trend yield and that'll be enough production to get us through the next year, both for corn and soybeans. That's not the likelihood if these forecasts verify. We're probably looking at enough stress it's going to pull yields further down in the quarter that's stressed more than the half that's above trend, it's harder to push those yields above trend than it is to drop the others below trend. And so I think we're probably going to end up dropping down into the 170s for corn yields a little early to detect that on on soybeans yet. In a couple of weeks, we'll have a better feel for that. Um, and, and if we drop below a 175 national yield, that gets us to the level where we're tightening supplies more, need to ration more demand. And so we've left a better than a dollar gap on the continuation charts for corn. I can very easily see a scenario where that gap could get filled again. Um, but that's not a guarantee. A lot of it hinges on how these forecasts verify, how much heat comes in, do rains unexpectedly develop, and stuff. Like that's kind of a situation as we sit today. Yeah, I mean, if you take the western corn belt out of it, if you look at much of the rest of the production area, there hasn't been any really extended heat that we would normally think coming 
for a summer. I mean, there have been some stretches, but uh, I mean, I, I'm living here in West Central Illinois, and we've been seeing a lot of highs in July in the 70s. I mean, that's pretty unusual. So long ways to go. Uh, but what you're saying is, it sounds like there's more chance of, of problems bringing things down rather than a big uh, improvement as we go along. Yeah, it's it's more difficult to push things above. Now, of course, we're in pollination now for the bulk of the crop. We're, the bulk of the crop nationally is pollinating within a 10-day period, so that's very significant. Had we seen a major dome of doom like 1988 or 2012, it would have been devastating for the crop. But because of the tight global situation right now, and especially with uh, the short Brazil crop that's just going to get smaller, we don't need that type of situation to create problems. All we need is a 5% drop in yield, and we've got a problem. Um, and actually less than that, just to drop in the yield down to 175, and we have a problem. So, and I get a lot of people saying, oh, Arlen, you're overstating things. You, you know, we've got a lot of corn around the country. Yeah, we do. But it doesn't, we're tight enough, it doesn't take that big of a problem in order to create tightness in the global balance sheet going forward. And that's why it matters. In fact, on soybeans, anything less than a trend yield, and we have to ration demand. Uh, so there's even less margin for error with soybeans, which is why soybeans have been taking more of the lead here over the past week or so. Yeah, it's just a, a different scenario than uh, we've had for quite some time. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. All right, so China makes another one of these announcements that they're going to increase production. Uh, I, I said this yesterday, a, a political announcement and the real, and reality are two, often two different things, right? Just because you say you're going to do something doesn't mean you will or can. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I, I had a conversation with our team in Shanghai about this um, uh, just this week, earlier this week, and uh, we talked about the various things that the government is doing to try to bring about increased supply uh, because they do want to be self-sufficient. They don't like having to be dependent on importing food-related products. Um, and so they've been investing in the seed industry. They've been investing in a, a lot of different factors, and they've given quotas to the various provinces uh, that reward them if they increase production in their, that, in their region of responsibility. Well, within China, what that does is encourage lying. And so local authorities say, well, we increased production more than they actually did. So the numbers come out, and perhaps this is why we see inflated stocks levels for China right now that USDA continues to report to this day, even though we know from the cash market that China is basically out of corn. Um, and having to import. What they're auctioning now is what they've actually imported from the United States and Ukraine. So uh, the other factor is I specifically asked, what are the chances that they're going to be successful at increasing yields with all the things they're doing? And he said, it's going to be very slow going. First of all, the Chinese farmer puts on far more fertilizer than what he needs to. He already over-fertilizes. So he's trying to maximize yield that way already. And it, you know, and they're still getting a national average yield of around 100 bushels per acre versus where we're at today of 80 bushels, about 80% above that. 
So then what about genetics? Well, they still have tremendous opposition to GMO there within China. And while there have been a lot of cooperative farms developed over recent years, uh, with a lot of people moving from the country into town, they still, their dominant situation in agriculture is hundreds of millions of farmers with a little acre, half acre to an acre farm. And it's very difficult to get them to accept the new technology and to apply it. And China could do things to move those people off the farms and to build the big cooperative farms. But then what do you do with these hundreds of millions of people that you've got to provide income to in an economy that's really struggling right now? Um, and so it, I think short term they may be overstating. USDA may be overstating what China needs to import or will import near term, but I think they still have a big corn feed deficiency problem that's going to continue in the years ahead. All right, let's look at our economy. As an economist, how concerned are you about inflation? I'm, I'm very concerned. Obviously, when you come out of a recession, and in this case, it was a man-made to, to shut down the economy, slow the spread of uh, coronavirus. Uh, when you come out of that, you're going to have a surge in demand. It takes some time to get the supply lines going again, and so you're going to have some inflation. That's the transitory or temporary inflation. There are certainly a lot of evidence of that. What I've been arguing, though, is that we're going to have a more perpetual uh, inflation beyond that. And for that, we simply had to wait for the evidence to back that up. And now we're starting to see that. The data that, <clears throat> excuse me, that we've seen that come out the last couple of days from the consumer level and from the uh, producer level is showing that. It's showing both. It's showing the transitory and it's showing more of the perpetual now. And I think it's a big problem when you increase, you do have increased demand, but the assumption <clears throat> is that that's just temporary. But when you increase money supply the way we've done, $5 trillion over the last two years, um, that increased availability of money into the consumer's hands t translates into higher spending levels than what they otherwise would. And yes, they're paying down debt, um, but they're still spending more as well. And a couple of reports that came out this morning from the New York Fed uh, Manufacturing District as well as Philadelphia, they're the first of the round for this month's cycle of Fed District meeting, uh, reports, again, showing the tremendous demand for manufactured goods and prices going up at a rapid pace. And the Fed likes to take food and energy out of the equation when they look at core inflation. But food and energy costs are going up fast, and they are foundational for a lot of these others. And wage inflation, this morning's report showing projected wage inflation of 4 to 5%, uh, that's perpetual inflation there as well. And that tends to be supportive hmm. of commodities long term. Arlen, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. Arlen Sitterman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crop, cattle, equipment, technology, and more. They are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Great numbers. What's behind them? Very exciting, actually. The momentum that we had in March and April continues in May. Broad-based growth across the whole spectrum for the most part. Uh, beef set a record, uh, all-time record for the month, a little over $900 million exported uh, globally. But it was a combination of Korea, China, Japan, Taiwan, and, and Mexico. So you had five or six uh, fairly prominent markets that all showed real uh, sustained uh, growth. So uh, that's exciting. And, of course, on the pork side, it wasn't a record, but it was the third largest month ever. So a very respectable month, um, about 284,000 metric tons. You know, the diversification into these other countries uh, is very important. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture.
Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. If I could be you. And you could be me for just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. As we have talked about many times before, labor is a big issue for agriculture, and that makes it a big issue for the entire country. Um, There is a bipartisan amendment to this year's Homeland Security Appropriations Bill that would allow farm employers to use the H-2A visa program to hire foreign workers regardless of whether those employees are engaged in temporary or seasonal work. Let's talk about it with Claudia Larson, Senior Director, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. Claudia, thank you for joining us. Why is this such an important amendment to the dairy industry, in particular agriculture in general? Sure. Thanks, Mike, for having me. It's great to be here. Um, This amendment is important for agriculture because right now we are in the middle of a labor crisis. Um, Dairy is somewhat uniquely situated within that crisis and that we cannot access um, H-2A workers, so um, guest workers that we would use to supplement our domestic workforce. And the reason we can't access that is because Department of Labor has interpreted the rules surrounding the H-2A program to mean that producers who harvest their food year-round cannot use the H-2A program, again, to supplement the domestic workforce. So what this amendment does is allows agricultural employers, regardless of whether that labor needed is for a temporary or seasonal job, but rather um, any year-round producer could access the H-2A program under this amendment if it were to become law for fiscal year of 2020. I mentioned it's a bipartisan amendment. That's encouraging. Uh, How much support do you think it'll get? Um, I think, I mean, this is a bipartisan amendment, yes, introduced by Congressman uh, Henry Cuellar of Texas and um, Dan Newhouse of Washington State. There has been a lot of bipartisan work surrounding ag labor reform, and that's always very, very hopeful, you know, this broad recognition of this labor crisis and the need to to get something done here to resolve this issue for our farmers, our farm workers, and you know, quite honestly, for all of Americans. Um, this amendment itself has been introduced in the past, um, and there has seemed to be growing excitement around ag labor reform, especially especially bipartisan ag labor reform. Um, 
typically immigration uh, amendments tend to get pulled out of final negotiations or final packages for appropriations bill bills. So it would be great if this one were to become law and were to be accepted. Um, I think the importance of this amendment, however, goes beyond it actually being adopted or becoming law. Again, it would be great if it did. It would provide our dairy farmers with that temporary relief from the ag labor crisis, at least for fiscal year 2020. But I think the impact of this amendment really is that it's also adding to the momentum of these broader bipartisan conversations revolving around ag labor reform that we've seen in the House of Representatives in 2019 and again this year, and that are right now picking up in the Senate. So again, um, the passage of this amendment into law would be great for dairy and for your own producers. But even if that weren't to happen, it's still, I think, really important and meaningful um, in the role that it's playing, again, in pushing ag labor reform forward. Yeah, part of the bigger picture and may may help with the uh, Farm Workforce Modernization Act as we wait to see uh, what the Senate does with that after the uh, House approved uh, with the bipartisan vote back in March. I wanna, Claudia, I want to put this, I always want to try to frame this in a much bigger picture. I mean, it's obviously mm-hmm. it's, important to, it's important to agriculture, but I, I want people to understand that uh, something like this that impacts our food production, it's a national security issue. It impacts everyone because of food availability, food sourcing, safety, so many different things. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think I think one of the things to remember here is our access to a reliable, reliable and stable workforce, as you've said here, um, absolutely impacts our ability to feed ourselves. We are no longer able to harvest our own food or feed ourselves. We would become reliant on others for our food supply, and absolutely that is a broader national security issue. Um, Obviously, I'm not saying that if we don't pass a bill today that tomorrow we're going to be facing a national security issue. I'm not not being that dramatic about it, but I think it is something to be mindful of, especially in in the longer term, the near longer term, if you will, um, at just how important it is that we are able to feed ourselves and that we aren't reliant on other countries or other nations for our food. What are you seeing and hearing in the Senate on the bigger uh, ag labor issue and legislation? Sure. So um, we do know that Senators um, Mike Bennett from Colorado and Mike Grapo from Idaho um, in March issued a statement. Actually, it was the same day that Farm Workforce Modernization Act passed the House again. Um, those two senators issued a statement saying that they were going to take the lead in ushering a Senate's answer to the Farm Workforce Modernization Act through the Senate, again, uh, demonstrating good bipartisan support for meaningful ag labor reform that actually serves our farmers and our farm workers. Um, so that's, that was exciting to see back in March. We know that conversations have continued. We know that both Senators Crapo and Senators Bennett have been invited to the 7 by 7 broader immigration reform discussions. Um, and from what we know, those discussions are continuing um, and hopefully soon we'll see a a firmer development regarding exactly how the Senate looks to offer an answer to the House's bill. And ultimately, um, our hope here is that we'll be be able to sort of build on the momentum from that bipartisan House bill 
the Senate will be able to make some improvements to that bill and provide, again, its bipartisan answer to the House bill and ultimately be able to reconcile those differences and get some meaningful ag labor reform that's good for our farmers, our farm workers, and like you said, all Americans and our ability to feed ourselves. All right, Claudia, thank you very much for the update. We appreciate it. Great, thank you. Claudia Larson, Senior Director of Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. That wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we'll take a look at the broadband issue in this country and getting broadband to uh, all parts of rural America. The challenges there, we'll talk about it and other issues tomorrow. I hope you'll join us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.